Today's scripture reading is Mark 14, 1-11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the, <clears throat> in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of anointment and of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. They were, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not, not always have me. She has done what she should, and she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests and in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him the money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Thanks so much, Gavin. Well, good afternoon, Disciples Church. It is good to see you. Welcome. Thanks so much for being here today. My name is Jonathan Mosher, and it's my privilege and honor to get to open up the Word of God with you and for you today. So if you're not already there, if you could turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. I was reminded just before service that we began the book of Mark in January of 2020. It's been a slog. We've had several interruptions in there. We had about three months that we were away for uh, the kind of the COVID break, and we worked our way through the Psalms and all those sorts of things. But as we get to Mark chapter 14, we can kind of see the end of this book in sight. We're closing in on the, on the very end of this story. In Mark chapter 14, uh, we find the story of uh, uh, the anointing of Jesus, which we um, just heard read for us. We find also the Last Supper, the betrayal, the arrest, and the trial of Jesus Christ. And then as we get into Mark chapter 15, we find the passion narrative, the discussion of the crucifixion. And what's so incredible about this particular portion of the text, at least to me, it jumped out to me this week as I was looking uh, at Mark chapter 14, is what a major role seemingly minor characters play. We're coming up to the pinnacle of history. Everything before this moment was leading up to it. Every moment since this moment has been marked by the significance in which we find Jesus Christ coming to the cross and ultimately as well to his resurrection. And what's amazing is that with all of the rich characters that we've been introduced to, the, the disciples who are going to become known as the apostles, the family of Jesus Christ, those that he's healed and those that he's rescued and the significant figures of the day and with, uh, with which he had contact, people like King Herod, of all the people that he has interactions with, the people at these very closing chapters of the book of Mark are relative unknowns. And in particular, as we look at Mark chapter 14 today, as we just finished the discussion last week of the Olivet Discourse, what you notice is that that, that masterful discussion of the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus actually prophesies what's going to happen in the future, is sandwiched by these two stories of women who are unnamed in the book of Mark. The woman in Mark chapter 12 
who brought just a few coins to give in demonstration of her love and her devotion to God. And Jesus in that moment sees this woman, this poor widow, and he magnifies her. He draws attention to her and he glorifies her and he says her name is not going to be forgotten. And today we come to a passage where Jesus says something very similar of this unnamed woman, at least unnamed in the book of Mark, who came to anoint Jesus Christ himself. And it's amazing because of the kind of praise that Jesus is going to lavish on this woman in this story to recognize that though her name is unknown to us, at least once again in the book of Mark, her story is of such significance that some 2,000 years later we're still talking about it. And with that in mind, look with me if you would at chapter 14, verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So Mark's going to set the scene for us, and he says we're just a couple of days away from Passover. This is a time, remember, in the, in, in the course of, of, of the yearly calendar of Jerusalem, in which the city was absolutely overwhelmed by visitors who were coming to this place to bring worship and homage to God the Father. The city was overwhelmed so much so that, that historians estimate that the city swelled to nearly three times its normal size. So just to put that in perspective, it would be like the city of Milwaukee running nearly 600,000 people swelling in the course of a two-week period to fit 1.8 million people. Our streets are not built for that. Our, our, our hotels could not sustain that kind of number. And it was just wall-to-wall, massive crowds of people. And, 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 and in this moment, the Pharisees who are actually plotting the destruction, the death, the murder of Jesus Christ are saying to themselves, we need to wait until after the Passover is finished. We're actually going to wait until after the crowds had left, because if we do it right now, we're afraid there's going to be a riot. Jesus is so well known. His teaching has gone so far and wide. The stories of his miracles have become so commonplace that the Pharisees and the chief priests were afraid that if people found out they were plotting the destruction and death of Jesus Christ, that they would have a crisis on their hands. And it's amazing, by the way, and we'll talk about this in the coming weeks, but it's amazing that in God's providence and in God's timing, their plan actually did not come to fruition. They had intended to wait till all of the feast of the Passover was finished, until the people had left the city, but in God's providence, in order to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is in fact the one and true Passover lamb, the one who takes upon him the sins of the world, their timeline was going to be sped up. They're waiting for just the right moment to kill him. And it's worth noticing once again that this, the story of this woman's sacrifice is, is sandwiched on either side by Mark's record of selfish and conniving behavior. In the first two verses here, we see the Pharisees and the chief priests planning to secretly arrest and kill Jesus. And in verses 10 and 11, we get the recording of ultimately Judas's betrayal. Now, I don't want to spend much time on either of those plot points because we're going to get into that more in the coming weeks. But I want to draw your attention to them as a contrast in Mark's eyes because he wants you to see the sacrificial love and devotion, the behavior of this unnamed woman. Verse 3, and while he was at Bethany, you'll remember Bethany is the home of 
Mary and Martha and Lazarus, while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now just imagine, if you can, the scene. And we do have to imagine a bit because Mark writes in this very quick manner. He doesn't give us a lot of detail and background like we find in the other Gospels. But if you were to read the other Gospel accounts, what you would discover is that at this place, the house of Simon the leper, this is very likely someone that Jesus had actually miraculously healed from leprosy. Thus they could be in his home, though he had been known as Simon the leper. As they're gathered in this place, the company is impressive. Here in this place are are Mary and Martha and Lazarus, brothers and sisters that are dear friends of Jesus Christ. And you'll remember this is after the resurrection of Lazarus. Now if I'm at this dinner, and here's Jesus, and here's Lazarus, I've got more questions than I know what to do with. Because undoubtedly people are having to ask Lazarus, man, I just got to ask you, I haven't seen you since the resurrection took place, but can you just tell me what that was like? What was it like? What was it like to actually physically die? What was it like to see glory? What was it like to actually taste death? And then what was it like to come back? What was it like to see your sisters once again? What was it like to see their faces when they saw the face of the one, this dear brother who had died? And then of course, here's Jesus the miracle worker, the teacher, the rabbi, the one who claims to be the son of man, the promised Messiah that Daniel foretold about. Here is Jesus who actually claims to be the son of God. He says, I and the father are one. How in the world can you make that claim? The conversation had to be riveting. And into this amazing scene, this incredible dinner, as the meal is probably just finished up, Jesus is now reclining at the table. Remember, they're all sitting on the floor, and as he sits on his side reclining there, a woman comes in with this expensive flask of ointment. The ointment, we're told, was, was a perfume. It was made of pure nard, which is which had come from a particular flower that was imported from India. And remember, this is, this is not like today where container ships carry items from all over the world on a fairly consistent basis. This is a time where to import something from, from someplace as far as India would have cost a tremendous amount of money. And then to process, to actually create this ointment was a very expensive process in and of itself. And as if that's not enough, we're told that it was held in this alabaster flask. A beautiful container see-through, so that you could actually see the contents of what was inside. There was true artistry and craftsmanship in creating a vessel like this. And Mark says, in a rather understated way, that it was very costly. We're told later exactly how much it was worth, because the criticism that came from those that were gathered at the table was that this item could have been sold for 300 denarii. That's about a year's wage. A a middle-class family's income being represented in this one particular valuable item. And as if that's not enough, what we know is that something of this sort of value likely would have been inherited. This isn't somebody that something that somebody went out and bought on a whim. This isn't something you just picked up because you happened to be in the market. This was something that was very likely a family heirloom. It had probably been passed down from generation to generation. Someone invested an incredible amount of wealth, and this was part of the inheritance that he left to his family. 
And so an ointment, a perfume like this, would have been used sparingly, drops of it here and there for special occasions. Very likely it could have been used as a dowry in the case of a marriage. Something that was so incredible, of such value, that it was given to demonstrate the worth of that couple who was being married. And it was also exactly the sort of item that somebody would have used to anoint a body for their burial. See, when you use something of this value, you just use a little bit. But notice what this woman does. She doesn't pull out, this, pull out the stopper and just drop a little bit on her finger and dab it around the ears and feet of Jesus. No, she breaks the bottle. And in doing so, she was declaring her intent. There was no fixing this vessel. She was going to use all of it right here and right now on Jesus. And when you begin to think about what she was giving up, you are struck with the sacrifice of this woman. This could have been her emergency fund in case of catastrophe. Not only was it of incredible financial value, but it would have been of personal significance. After all, this would have been something that that she would have personally benefited from. That could have affected the future outcome of her family. Or it was an honor that she could have bestowed on the loved one who passed. And as if all of that is not enough, John, in his account of the same story, includes the detail that she poured it out over the head of Jesus and onto his feet as well. And that then she got down on her knees, let down her hair, and began to wipe Jesus' feet dry. And an act like that was culturally unthinkable. She had broken all kinds of expectations and cultural mores in doing this at this moment. First of all, she had approached the table where men were sitting. And in a culture like this that was was male-dominated and built around the importance of men, women did not come to the table unless they were serving the meal. But this woman barges into the room, goes immediately before Jesus, and then lets down her hair. A woman of good reputation at this time would never let down her hair in public. Her hair was considered her glory. It was something that in this culture only her husband would have seen her hair let down. A woman of good reputation would never have thought to do this in a crowded room in front of strangers. But this woman, as we're going to see, is not concerned with the approval of anyone but Christ. This act cost her not only her wealth and her financial security and the impact that it would have had on her family going forward, but it also cost her any shred of reputation that she might have had. And at the root of this act of generosity, we find true and deep worship. That this woman loved Jesus so much, so intensely, so passionately that she gave up something that meant everything to her. We talk about worship a lot and we use that terminology fairly loosely, but to worship something is to value it above everything else. To worship Jesus is to declare with your lips and your life that there is nothing more meaningful and no one more worthy than Jesus Christ himself. And when you worship Christ above all else, you can be sure that the criticism of others is not far behind. 
We see the response of those that were gathered here. In John's account of the story, he's going to go so far as to tell us that Judas Iscariot was actually going to lead the critique of this woman's actions. But look how they responded in verse 4. There were some some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Imagine the callous heartlessness that it takes to criticize a woman in this moment. The sense of belittlement that they intended this woman to feel. She had just poured out not only her wealth, but figuratively poured out her heart before the Lord. To demonstrate the sincerity of her worship and her passion and her love for the Christ. Her recognition of who Jesus Christ actually is. And she gives everything. She puts everything on the line. And what is she met with in this moment? Criticism. Scorn. Belittlement. Mockery. Anyone who's put themselves out at all. And maybe put their emotions or what they're experiencing or something vulnerable out on the table only to have it criticized or ridiculed can imagine how small this woman felt in this moment. She intends this to be this generous, loving gift. And here are these men of significance mocking her. And their criticism was that she had been wasteful. That her gift had been too much. That she'd gone too far. This was far too extravagant for Jesus. Imagine all the good that could be done for all the other people if they'd have sold it instead. And it's likely that many of the same people who in this moment were criticizing this woman for her actions were the very same people who two chapters earlier went completely unimpressed by the widow's offering. Instead, valuing the loud and boastful offerings of the wealthy who had gathered at the temple. And so when they heard Jesus in that moment say, this woman has given more than anyone else here, they would have scoffed in their minds going, you don't know what you're talking about. That woman gave next to nothing. Except in this moment, they didn't keep their opinions to themselves. And what we're given is a fascinating insight into the person of Judas. In John's account of the story, he calls out the fact that it was Judas himself who was in charge of the money bag. And that on many occasions, he he treated that money bag, the money that was intended to be used for the ministry of Jesus Christ, he used it as as his own personal piggy bank. We know that according to verses 10 and 11, he left this place. This was the last moment where we, see, where we see Judas interacting with Jesus in this, in this particular occasion, he leaves this place and goes straight to the chief priests to plan his own betrayal of Jesus. So how in the world could someone have the gall to stand here and criticize this woman only to turn around and sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver? See, the truth is, cheapskates have to justify their own lack of worship for Christ by coming up with seemingly unassailable excuses. And 2,000 years later, religious hucksters and politicians alike use the poor as props to advance their own pet causes and careers. 
And truthfully, there's a lot of selfish advancement that is done in the name of caring for the poor, and there is likewise a lot of caring for the poor that is left undone by the people who claim to advocate for their interests. Why? Because religion, religion inevitably creates hypocritical, self-serving worship. And when I say religion, what I mean is some sort of act of devotion or, or means of lifestyle that is actually devoid of an understanding of and worship of God. Religion inevitably creates hypocritical self-serving worship, whereas a relationship with Christ inevitably creates authentic self-sacrificing worship. And true worship in the life of a Christian can demonstrate itself in what's considered extreme behavior by the world. In this case, extreme benevolence. See, the truth is, no one is bothered in this world by a quiet, measured, private faith. You can believe what you want, and you can think what you want, and you can worship the way you want, so long as it doesn't bother anybody else. So long as I'm not forced to consider my own lifestyle, my own behavior, my own beliefs, my own understanding, you can do or worship whatever it is you want. But when faith begins to demonstrate itself in unexpected and even in the world's eyes, reckless behavior. You can expect scorn and criticism. When your beliefs begin to confront and challenge the assumptions of those who do not know God and in fact sneer in the face of God, you can expect criticism. So if you give your life over to the modern social issues that culture elites declare to be the cause du jour, you're called a freedom fighter and an advocate. But if you give your life to Jesus, and if you live your life for him, you are a religious extremist and a zealot. And I say all of this not as a political screed, but to point out that what this woman experienced is the first century version of being called an extremist. There is nothing new under the sun. Things have not changed. Labels change and causes change and offenders change. But the core issue at the heart of all of this is the brokenness of mankind. Our desire to sit on the throne of God, to draw attention to ourselves, to advance our own pet causes and careers, to look good in the eyes of other people while caring only for ourselves. But look at Jesus' response in verse 6. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. See, in the example of this woman and in the example of the poor widow, we see a truth about the nature and the character of God, which is that the value of our worship is defined entirely by the motivation of our heart and not by the inherent worth of the gift itself. The poor widow gave two pennies, but it was all she had. And in seeing that, Jesus says, this woman has given more than anyone else. The woman in this story gives something equivalent to a year's salary. And both are commended, not for the value of their gifts, but for the motivation of their hearts. See, it's a hard thing it's a hard thing to live a life that is solely focused on the approval of Jesus. 
We are so aware of what other people think. We're so aware of of how other people might perceive our actions, our behaviors. We want to be liked and we want to be well thought of. But notice, if you struggle with those ideas, if you're self-aware about what other people think of your faith or, or the way that you live or your understanding of Christ or those sorts of things, notice here what Jesus does. Because Jesus defends those who are wrongly criticized. That he comes to the defense of those who are wrongly attacked. Notice his response to Judas and the others. Leave her alone. This is a hard correction from the mouth of Jesus in the presence of witnesses. He calls out Judas and the others who began to criticize this woman. He sets them straight in this moment. He will not suffer their foolishness. And then he says this. Why do you trouble her? Notice the language as it's translated in our Bibles. She has done a beautiful thing to me. There's several words that can be translated into English as the word good, but the one that is used here in the Greek is rightly translated in our Bibles as beautiful. Jesus goes so far as to use emotive language. Jesus here is emotional. You can imagine his response as this woman comes into the room. As she breaks open the alabaster flask, you can imagine a smile coming to the corner of Jesus' lips as he realizes what it is she's about to do, this generous offering that she's about to make. And as she anoints his head with oil and she pours the entire contents of this expensive perfume over Jesus' head, you can imagine that smile perhaps turning even to tears of appreciation in recognition of her worship of him. And you can imagine how cut Jesus is even in the moment where she gets down on her knees to begin wiping up the perfume with her hair. And he will not suffer people making fun of her, criticizing her, mocking her because of this beautiful thing she had done. And then he says this in verse 7. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Jesus is saying here, it is a good and right thing to care for the poor. We're commanded to do it. We're instructed to do it. We find examples of it all throughout Scripture. It is a good and right thing. It is part of our faith. It's part of the life that we are called to, to care for the poor. But Jesus is saying something here. He's not diminishing the importance of caring for the poor, but he is illustrating that it is incumbent upon us to make much of him while we have the opportunity. See, to serve others and to do good to others and to care for the poor is good and right, but it must be preceded by sitting at the feet of Jesus This woman's worship of him comes from a place of actually being with him and knowing him. Her humility is demonstrated in this moment. And imagine witnessing the scene firsthand. Here the worthiness of Christ is put on display. For some who witness this, perhaps they they, they looked on with their souls stirred longing to make a similar demonstration of their love and their faith and their care for Jesus. It stirred their affections for Christ to see this woman caring for Jesus this way. For others, perhaps it led them to circumspection. 
What's going on in my heart as I see this taking place? Do I care about Jesus that way? Do I love him that way? Would I be willing to sacrifice what this woman sacrificed on his behalf? But notice the response of Judas. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. And they promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas goes out of his way not to bring joy to the woman who had just demonstrated her sacrificial love for Christ, but to bring joy to the people who had set out to murder him. Judas sees the worthiness of Christ on display. He has a visible representation of it sitting in front of him. He sees the act of generosity from this woman. He witnesses her love for Christ, but rather than it stirring up his affections for Christ, it actually made him resent Jesus all the more. This woman came to Jesus to see what she could give him. She came to see what she could give in order to worship Jesus. And Judas leaves to see what he could get for betraying Jesus. And in Judas' response in this moment, we see the illustrated truth of the Apostle Paul who wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us into triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Listen. To one a fragrance from death to death. To the other a fragrance from life to life. What does that mean? It means that this woman spread the proverbial fragrance of the gospel through her life and her actions. But that very same fragrance, the very same fragrance that brought a tear perhaps to Jesus' eye or a smile to his face or even created in him some sort of angst at the fact that she was being criticized, this very same fragrance was a stench in the nostrils of Judas. In other words, the same gospel The same gospel life that draws some repels others. The same gospel message that softens the heart of some hardens the heart of others. And what was the essence of the gospel message that is communicated in her act of worship? Look at verse 8. Jesus says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. So if you begin to read commentaries on this text, what you find is that there are all kinds of questions about whether or not this woman actually knew and understood that Jesus was going to die or or whether she was just coming to demonstrate her love and compassion for him, her care for him, her appreciation of him, and Jesus happens to turn that demonstration into a proverb about his own pending death. And we can begin to ask those questions for ourselves. Did she actually know, in fact, that he was going to die? Had she heard through the grapevine of Jesus foretelling his own death? Did she have some vague sense placed in her heart by the Holy Spirit? Did she have some sense of intuition about what was going to happen to Christ? 
And while we don't know her heart, here is my reckon for what it's worth. I think she understood something in this moment the disciples had failed to realize. The disciples had heard on countless occasions now Jesus foretelling and prophesying his own death. And at every point, they rejected and ignored what he said. They couldn't get it through their heads. I don't want a suffering Savior. I don't, want a, I don't want a Savior who goes to the cross. I don't want a Savior who dies. I want a Savior who rides in and takes over, who expels our enemies, who ushers in the literal presence of the kingdom of God, who takes over this world, who restores Israel to its rightful place. That's the Savior I want. And in declaring for themselves the sort of Savior that they wanted, they missed the Savior they were given. The suffering Savior who is going to go to the cross, who is going to experience brutality like no one else has ever experienced, both physical and spiritual. But this woman, in some sense or another, had a level of understanding of what was going on. And whether or not she was able to verbalize what was about to happen to Jesus Christ, she had enough of an understanding of his significance to demonstrate her love for him in this unbelievable act of worship. She was illustrating what we sang about earlier. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. The most extravagant thing she owns she pours out on Jesus. She counts it as if it's nothing in his presence. And every shred of dignity and respectability that she had, she was willing to give up. She pours contempt on her own pride. That song continues, where the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. See, the truth is, brothers and sisters, we don't have the realm of nature to give him. What we have is our life. And when we're confronted with the boundless love of Christ, it demands a response from us. See, this woman already viewed Jesus as her everything. She already recognized in him the purpose for her being. And her act of anointing is not what delivered her. It's not what brought her forgiveness. Rather, the anointing was the natural manifestation of the love she had already experienced from him. And the result of her offering, we see in verse 9, is perfectly borne out today. I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. She gave up everything she had and she gained something infinitely greater. To gain the love of Christ, the praise of Christ, what would we be willing to give to gain that? 
And the truth is, Jesus Christ has already given everything for us so that we can experience that approval and that acceptance and that love perfectly. That as he went to the cross, he went not asking, now what is it you can do for me? What are you going to do that's going to earn my love for you? I've gone to the cross for you. What are you going to give me in that place? How are you going to pay me back? He didn't ask any of those questions. He went knowing it would cost him everything and gladly went in order to provide it for you and for me. And the fact that we're looking at this text some 2,000 years later proved that Jesus made good on this promise. So friend... What is this story working in you? Had you been sitting there that day, what questions would you have been asking yourself? What would your response have been? Because the truth is, we have this story 2,000 years later so that we can ask that same question to ourselves now. When you hear the sweet invitation of Christ in the story, does it stir up your heart to love Christ deeper? to know him better, to serve him. We sang the song earlier, Is He Worthy? And that question gets repeated over and over intentionally in that song. And the question is really one for your own heart. Do you actually believe he's worthy? We sang about it and we read about it and we come here presuming, but is he actually worthy of all that? Does it stir you up? in your affections for Christ? Or do you feel resentment, avoidance, obligation, apathy? See, to the extent that you recognize a problem with your response, are you concerned about those things? Does it actually make you ask questions of yourself about who God is and who Christ is and about his love and his compassion for you. See, this story is giving both as an invitation and a warning. See, we're talking about Judas tonight, 2,000 years later as well. Judas is likewise memorialized, but for his betrayal. And this woman is memorialized for her worship. Do you understand, brother and sister, that there is nothing better than the love of Christ? That we live our Christian lives with an audience of one, concerned only with what he thinks. And that in that we find freedom and a defender and the lover of our souls. It's what he wants you to know coming away from a text like this. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I thank you for the example of this woman. I thank you for her heart of devotion and her heart of worship, for the example that she is to us, for the, for the way that it creates questions in our own heart about how we view you and how we worship you and how we love you and what we're holding back from you. But God, if our, if our study of this text extends only to her worship, we will miss the point. Because the object of her worship is infinitely more important. God, would we see you as this woman does? 
so holy and so powerful and so loving, so compassionate and so forgiving and so worthy that it demands our life and our all. Would we be honest with ourselves in our assessment? And to the extent that we're concerned or we're worried or we're wondering, would we run to you knowing that you give your grace freely, that you give wisdom and insight through your spirit. And we pray, God, that you would do that work in our hearts tonight. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.